0: This is the Roscoe's Wetsuit Neuro Podcast, the neurohacking show where we teach you how to optimize your cognition. Keep up to date at roscoeswetsuitneuro.com. Now here's your host, Toby Passman.
1: All right. We have a special episode today. We have a special guest, Marty Strong. Marty is a Navy SEAL officer, a healthcare CEO, and chief strategy officer. He's the author of Be Nimble, How the Navy SEAL Mindset Wins on the Battleground and in Business. So Marty, welcome to the show.
0: Hey, Toby. Thanks for having me.
1: So tell me, let's start off talking about uh, Navy SEALs and just kind of what did you always, was that always kind of a dream of yours to, to do that or how did, you, how did you get into doing that?
0: No. <laughs> um, so... There was a time when there weren't any books or TV shows, uh, movies, et cetera, about the SEAL teams. They were um, much more secretive uh, back in the 70s, 80s, and, and probably into the mid-90s. So the people that knew about the SEALs were either in the Navy, had interacted with them um, professionally, or were family members of current SEALs. Uh, there wasn't any recruiting till about 1986. No active recruiting by the United States Navy, if you can believe that. Uh, so when I became a SEAL, there was only 256 SEALs approximately. So now I think we're up to 3,000 something. So it was a very small little group. And the, uh, the, their main claim to fame was jungle warfare from Vietnam, uh, about 10 years of combat all, all in between SEAL Team 1 and SEAL Team 2. And I was actually uh, sent to the, the SEAL training, the basic course, which is called BUDS, Basic Underwater Demolition, Demolition SEAL Training. By accident, Uh, I went through. I I joined the Navy to be a a radar air traffic control expert. Um, I went to a a seventeen-week school uh, north of Chicago for those skills. Uh, I graduated, and then when I went up to uh, pick up my orders in the middle of a snowstorm and pick up my my ticket to fly out of Chicago, the orders said report no later than 0730 tomorrow morning, uh, Coronado, California. The underwater demolition seal training. Didn't even know what the words meant. I was 17 years old. Um, and it took me a, a, took me a couple of years, uh, like eight years before I really put the whole story together. But I, I went in to take a swimming test as part of boot camp. And what I didn't realize is the swimming test, which I thought was about a competitive event during boot camp. They took my name and social security number down and I did really well. And uh, that put me on the list for seal training. So even though I'd gone through all the radar air traffic control school, um, I ended up at SEAL training in California asking anybody and everybody if they could get me back to uh to radar and air traffic control. So, one of the um a very interesting guys, about five foot three, Vietnam veteran SEAL uh, master chief, talked me into uh sticking around trying it, you know. he He's pretty good. He's pretty persuasive. You know, yeah. Do you play football? Yeah. Did the the coaches yell at you? Yeah. Did they punish you? Yeah. Well, it's kind of like that here. You know, you know, do you know how to swim? Oh yeah. I was a competitive swimmer AAU for eight years. Oh, you'll do fine. How about waves? I spent a couple of years in Hawaii in high school, surfed. You're good. And if it doesn't work out, it's a volunteer program. You can just say I'm out and they'll send you back because you're a trained radar expert (laughs) air traffic controller. You're going to end up right back where you thought you were going anyway. But uh, that didn't happen. I ended up joining a class of 126. Six months later, we had 13 of the original 126 left. And, wow. uh, and I was a, a seasoned 18-year-old weighing in at about 128 pounds as I was heading towards SEAL Team 2. That's how my beginning began.
1: So they really re- uh, weed out quite a lot of people in the training process. 75%. 75%. And so there's the the well known at this point the the hell week right that, that gets talked about. What kind of can you describe like sort of what you know the training entailed and and you know what kind of physically and mentally were was uh, was it like?
0: Sure. So all the elite commando groups, whether it's U.S. or 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 allies, they all have some kind of a selection, you know, rite of passage event. Uh, in the seals, it has a lot to do with cold water and um, a lack of sleep and constant physical activity to try to drain your reserves and to amplify the voice in your head. And we, I'm sure we'll talk about that a little bit. So you, um, you end up with anywhere from four to six weeks of training prior to hell week. It's that period before hell week has modified and changed over the years, but it's roughly that, mo- that much time. In my time, we lost half the class before Hell Week. So we started Hell Week with about 62 uh, trainees. And no real idea why you're in the, in the program, going through it, why everybody's leaving. You're just coming back at the end of the day and you go into your room and there's two empty beds, all the, all the linens gone. And you're like, what happened to Joe and Bob? You know, And they, they'll whisk them out of the, the environment. They'll get them someplace else. You never get to talk to them again. Uh, back in my time, we didn't have all the internet connectivity, so you couldn't, you know, maintain, you know, couldn't t- text him and say what happened, you know, um, it was like a mystery, it was like alien abduction, boom, gone, uh, which also heightened the psych, the psychology of the whole, you know, experience, and uh, on purpose, I think, so Hell Week is five days long, they used to put you in the barracks and they attack you in the barracks on Sunday night, that attack is uh, multiple instructors coming in with grenades and um, uh, machine guns, belt fed machine guns, making sound, you know, these aren't real grenades that'll kill people. They're, they're sound makers, but inside of a structure, they, they're pretty loud. And they come in and they have smoke grenades outside the building and it's to disorient you, shock you. And then they get you into the the main compound and start uh, spraying water all over everybody with a fire hose. And, there's probably 15 to 20 instructors swarming the class. Um, this, this period is called breakout. It changes a little bit over time. It, sometimes it's an early breakout, uh, mid evening on Sundays. It's gone as much as three in the morning into Monday morning. Um, you try to trick them a little bit, try to get them to stay up anticipating. It's, it's, it's all again, a mind game. And then at some point during the um, probably 30 to 40 minutes that they're being messed with in the, in the um, compound, the class leaders are given instructions for the first evolution, and that first evolution is probably going to be something significant, like a five-mile ocean paddle at night or a uh, ten-mile run on the beach in soft sand. It's going to be something that's going to um, not just stress them out, but it's going to sound so significant that as everybody goes out to wherever they have to go to start that first event, you've already got ten people to quit. <laughs> They've already said enough. Now, just to give you a little perspective, I went through went through Hell Week, obviously. I came back eight years later and I ran Hell Week. So Mm -hmm. I actually ran about eight Hell Weeks. I was in charge of the first phase of SEAL training. I was uh, responsible for the running of Hell Week. I was responsible for uh, a team of 14 instructors and how we choreographed everything. And that's when I found out about the built in psychology, the exact plan. And it was a plan, it was a book that thick, filled with instructions and guidance and don't push too hard and how to just get the tempo just right. And the purpose of every one of the events, the psychological impact throttle forward, throttle back, give them some time to think push forward. Don't let them think come back. Give them some time to think all orchestrated when you're in it. It's total chaos. You don't think any of it. You think they're just coming up with stuff and they, and although it's not scripted, a lot of the instructors will uh, talk amongst each other in front of the, and students like they're just coming up with it. So, When you think it's crazy, and the crazy instructors can do whatever they want to do with you, you have a loss of control, and you don't see how you're going to make it through whatever crazy they come up with, and your mind starts thinking things ten times worse than we could ever legally do, and you get more people quitting because they start listening to that voice in their head. So, and I came back later on, um, several years after that, as an officer in charge of the third phase of SEAL training, but because I had so much experience with the hell week and the people that were actually running buds knew me from the first iteration. i put them through as sealed students. So they kept pulling me into the, um, the oversight tasks of these other hell weeks. So all in with my hell week, um, uh, and those two, those two tours, probably 12 or 13 hell weeks that I either you know, observed 12 to 12 or so, and, and went through one sleep deprivation all through the five days, very little like cat naps given as, um, as gifts or uh, rewards for certain activities, winning contests, physical contests, usually. And, um, and at the end of our class, I think we ended up with about 23 out of the 62 that started. So five days later.
1: So what were some of the, the traits or skill set that, that you think that you possessed that, that enabled you to make it through? Like what, what went into that?
0: You know, I had a lot of time to think about that. Um, I think as I watched the experiment, and that's what we kind of call it, because if you mess with it, you can change the outcome easily. But as I watched the experiment eight years later and watched others go through it and saw what was happening, and all of us instructors would talk amongst ourselves, well, how the heck did I ever do this? How the heck did I ever get through this? You, we couldn't even visualize ourselves doing it you know, and getting through it, because you're kind of in a haze during, during Hell Week. I think I didn't want to, I didn't want to quit. And I didn't want to quit in my case, because I didn't want to be able to face, didn't want to have that moment where I faced my father, who didn't even know I was there, but still faced my father and said, I tried something that was really difficult, and I gave up. Uh, He wasn't, he was an authoritarian of of, of sorts, but he wasn't heavy handed. He he, he really wasn't uh, much of a pushing kind of personality. But he never really gave me much credit for most of the things I did as a kid in sports, et cetera. So I was always kind of looking up to him, trying to get some kind of a pat on the back from him. I think that's kind of the core reason why I couldn't see myself walking away from the experience. The other part of it is I was 17, you know, just about 18. And at at that age, when you're in the military, people tell you, go, go left, go right, go up, go down, sit, stand. You start just kind of doing it. And so I think I kind of went with the flow of the, the, you know, the, the event. Um, and I was a good athlete. So I I wasn't very good in long distance running. I was good in short distance running. So I was only punished when we did long distance runs, everything else, I, I seemed to be able to handle pretty well. So that was my, that was kind of the hammer that would get that voice in my head going was they came out and said, we're going 12 miles. You know, I'm like, oh man, I was the worst runner in my class on day one, 126th Runner in, in, in line. I was the 13th fastest runner of the original guys when we graduated. I was, I was still the worst runner. So I think that that was um, not wanting to quit for the, my own reasons. And I think every student that goes through has their own personal reason. There's no collective reason. That's, it's not about patriotism. It's not about some other altruistic goal that you walk in there and say, I'm not going to quit because it's God and country or anything. It's nothing like that. Everybody has kind of their own driver and they probably don't even recognize it in themselves for quite a while maybe for years like i said
1: there's there's some intrinsic motivating factor that mm-hmm. that comes into play okay and then what can you tell me about the the psychology behind it that you're talking about with that that big book when you actually became a you know an instructor yourself what can you tell me about you know the the psychology behind hell week and, and seals training like what are they What are they hoping to be able to achieve or, or test or measure? Like what, what goes into that?
0: Sure. So everybody that shows up has, has passed a physical training test. So they can swim, they can run, they can do pushups. They can do sit-ups. They can do pull-ups. They're all physically capable. Although they call it training for the most part, the, the repetition of all those things I just read off through the whole um, course through six months isn't really training, it's more um, testing and, and trying to set you up to fail. Now, the PC culture nowadays, they're not allowed to really say those words out loud to anybody, but essentially what they're doing is they're trying to give you everything that you experience becomes a challenge for you to overcome. So if you're the best runner in the class, the instructors will find a way that you have to be challenged in some other category. If you're the best swimmer, same thing. Otherwise you're not going to kind of meet that voice in, in your head. You have to you have to have a conversation where you face a challenge you don't know if you can actually overcome. You have to face fear of failure. You have to face whatever that is that, that would drive you to not want to quit. And then you have to win that conversation or you have to start a different narrative. And some people have that in their head when they show up from they've had very difficult lives before they show up. And that's a very short, short experience. They get to that solid, positive conversation quick, like in the first couple of weeks. Others, it takes longer. And the ones that quit from counseling hundreds and hundreds of of people that actually quit. They've they've had that conversation probably from the third or fourth day. And the narrative has been all in the negative side. They've convinced themselves. They've, they've got, I've, I've got people that you didn't think would have enough energy to, to ask for a drink of water, gave me long dissertations on the full logic package of exactly why the, it, the program isn't for them. <laughs> they've, and, and we all, we see that and we, we try to talk back into the class and they end up quitting. We all look at each other and go, that was rehearsed. This guy has mentally been conditioning himself for this moment for weeks. So that's essentially what the whole program is about, whether it's academics, whether it's the uh, physical activities, it's to set challenges in front of the students and to have them kind of meet their, meet their inner self and make a decision. So it is a volunteer program. They can, they can just raise their hand, say, I'm done, and walk away anytime they want. There's no coercion. There's no, nothing holding them there. And that's an interesting kind of burden all by itself, because it really is your call.
1: Right. Right. Yeah. The deepest sort of test of yeah, your character, your, your, um, your perseverance. So it sounds like then that that sort of mindset is is one of the it sounds like kind of the essential element there, right? In terms of whether someone's able to get through it or not. Does it sort of really come come down yes. to whether they can have that mindset of, I can push through anything. I can get through this no matter what compared to that's, telling themselves that they might not, that, you know, that they can't do it.
0: That's traditionally the value in, in all other selection processes. It's something close to that in other organizations. If we can take anybody and teach them how to shoot a gun, we can take anybody and, and train them to, to walk or run faster with a pack, pack on their back you can take a a competitive swimmer and say, okay, you know, swim this distance, but that, that element that you just described, if that's not there, then it doesn't matter because the moment, the day, whenever, whenever Murphy or fate decides that they're, they're going to run into a challenge. It may be a physical one, like climbing a a mountain, or it might be, you know, um, the potential of being killed, facing an overwhelming, overwhelming odds, whatever it is that's the moment where they they'll have that inner voice conversation and argument. That's the wrong moment for us. We never, we never want that conversation to happen once they've left Bud. So that's a key component, a key element, the essence, everybody that gets out of the program has that. The other thing that's kind of, I won't say it's a a collateral or a, a kind of secondary effect because we call ourselves the teams. And that is you kind of go from a, a me to we mindset. So a lot of the, the discussions, the scripted um, interactions between instructors and students from day one is about the team, whatever the size of the team. And at a minimum, it's about the person next to you. And in the SEAL teams, the smallest unit is two. Nobody ever gets sent on a one-man job. So that, that smallest team in, in basic training is called a swim buddy. It's the person that you're attached to when you swim. That can't get any further than six feet away from you, or that's a safety violation. But conceptually, a swim buddy goes on to if there are two of you are entering a room in a counterterrorism mission or a counterterrorism training, you're a two-man swim buddy. You're a two-man team. So that starts to get pounded into you as an expectation. It's not about how good you are. Nobody cares. It's about how good you are as a contributor to the team. So that's a little bit harder. To mold, it takes a little bit more time. Uh, you know, everybody's got an ego. You make it through the SEAL training, especially nowadays, you make it through the SEAL training. You know, there's movies. There's, you know, everybody in your family knows what it is. My family, I told them what I was. They, all they could think of was the, the sea animal. Um, no matter how I explained it, so then I would just say, or if I was, you know, if I was going out, you know, as a young 20-year-old or 19-year-old and saying, you know, talking to a girl in a bar, I, all I could say was it's kind of like the Green Berets. You ever see any Green Beret movies, you know, because nobody had any concept hard to have an ego when nobody cares what you, what you say you are. Right. But nowadays they come out and they think they're rock stars because society is, you know, giving them um, kudos all the time. So that's kind of a tug towards the me side (laughs) instead of the we side. So I think it's more difficult now for seal leaders to, you know, and and trainers in the interim training process, because it takes a couple of years to get them to where they're combat ready to get them to, to really focus on the team and the we. But then once that's kind of locked in, they're that way for life. They're the most loyal, most dedicated. I mean, they will do anything for their swim buddy, for their family, you know, for their kids, maybe loyal to, to, um, to too much of an extent when they become employees, you know, they, they they don't want to quit. They don't want to quit the team. They don't want to give up. They want to contribute. You know, they want to make a difference. And uh, those are the two elements. If If those two elements click in one is kind of internal about themselves and, 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 uh, their, their mindset. And the other one is shifting from a me to a, we focus, then, then the training pipeline has done its job, but that kind of person, we, we can teach them anything and we can send them anywhere.
1: Mm. That's it. That's an interesting sort of dynamic there where it's like someone, someone has to both find sort of the internal motivation and have the right mindset, um, to be so focused and also be able to withstand, like, as you're talking about all of these people just kind of dropping off, you know, the training just out of nowhere, right? Where it's like, but then you still have to be able to have that kind of group cohesive mindset or, or right? Like that, that seems, yeah, a, yeah it seems like definitely a, a challenge when when your group is constantly changing and the people are dropping out and you don't know why and you just have to kind of deal with it.
0: Yeah. I mean, if you could imagine, you know, pick any iconic group, you know, like a Led Zeppelin or you know, Maroon 5 or something. If you had everyone in the, that band, if you had the equivalent of every, every capability at the high level that every, every musician could play, and you had a hundred of every one of them, you could sw- swap out almost anybody and create the band over and over and over again, because they all know how to play together. They all, they're all at that same level. That's kind of how SEALs are. You know, you take five SEALs and throw them in with five other SEALs they've never met. They'll be pay, playing pickup basketball in probably 20 minutes. There, there's not an argument. There's not a disconnect. There's not two radically different ways of thinking or radically different ways of doing things. Um, and they all have the same, you know, core values and the same expectations of each other and the same commitment to each other. So that's a fun place to work. That, that's a, you know, I, I use the band, you know, um, analogy because i've watched a lot of these these uh, documentaries about some of the you know iconic bands of the of the 70s 80s and 90s lately and you see that you know you see them clicking you see you can see why one one band member leaves and the whole thing falls apart right because they worked that way together the way they were doing it and then the one component leaves and it all kind of falls apart um yeah it's a it's a cool experience it's a, a an interesting life and uh it's, it's even more interesting when you get out outside and get out of uniform and see how the rest of the world works.
1: Yeah. And that, that's a perfect transition. Cause I was just going to ask you about kind of translating these sort of those skills that you may be gained, both going through the SEALs training yourself, along with being an instructor and, and how that sort of translated to, to the business world. Once you got into that. So
0: I'll, I'll, I'll say it right up front. You, you're spoiled when you're a SEAL. You know and I was an officer and I was given, you know, 10, 15, 20 guys. Uh, I think the largest command I had was um, 32 it was a task unit. It cost anywhere from 2 to 3 million dollars to train a SEAL. All in, at, for a 2-year period of concentrated basic, intermediate and advanced training. So I'm getting pre-screened, highly motivated, self-starters, or committed to each other, committed to the team, committed to the mission, probably You know, double A, if not triple A, collegiate athlete level, you know, um, people that all think they're Napoleon with high IQs. You step out of uniform and you go into any organization in the United States, and that's not what you have. You're not. That's not reality. You know, and I think for a lot of SEALs that get out and try to get into the mainstream and the commercial side, it's a shock. You know, you if you you've become accustomed to it. Now, if you, if you started out really young, it's definitely a shock because that's all you've really known. I mean, I I basically was 17 and a half to 18 when I started. And uh, that's, that's what I knew that's. And I spent so much time on the road. I was never really in a civilian commercial environment. I mean, I met my neighbors and things, but that's a little bit different. So I found that there's a lot of what I knew to be very valuable and, and what I thought I had as far as attributes didn't translate because there was a lot more me than we, everybody was self-focused. Everybody was worried about their job, their next job, their raise, their promotion, you know um, how they looked. Uh, It was very self-centered. It was a very interesting universe. Uh, It was the opposite. It was almost exactly a polar opposite. Now there were people that were driven and that doesn't necessarily mean, you know, positive uh, in a positive way. It could have been driven to, um, exceed and Excel and, you know, do things just for their own benefit. There are people, but sometimes that would be so socially team oriented that it wasn't about executing and performing and, and accomplishing anything of any measurement. It was just, they liked working with other people. So and then you have an accountability problem, with that kind of a, an approach. So what I ended up doing is I ended up kind of stepping back and you know, in prisoner of war school, they teach us that the day after you become a prisoner or the day you become a prisoner, you have to come to grips with one, one pure fact. You're no longer whatever you were. You're no longer the commander, you know, of a ship. You're no longer the, the, the commander of a, of a squadron. You're not a fighter pilot. You're not a SEAL. And all those, all those perks, the rank, the authority being you know, looked up to whatever, you're not that anymore. And you're not a badass because you're surrounded by 10 people with guns pointing at you. So what they teach you is the faster you get over that, that moment and recognize kind of like the black Swan, you know, um, comparison, the quicker you recognize it's a black Swan, you recognize that whatever you have you've been doing is not going to work. And the sooner you come up with a whole new normal, a whole new way of looking at the world, rather than say, well, it'll get better, it'll stay the same, we'll wait and see what happens, the quicker you succeed when a black swan hits you. Well, this is like a personal black swan when you're a prisoner of war. So the quicker you realize that you're a prisoner of war and the quicker you start to absorb the environmental information, meaning where's the food coming from? Where are the water sources? How many guards are there? What makes them mad? What makes them happy? How many people do I have you know, that I can count as allies and friends? All those things, the sooner you learn those rules of your new reality, the quicker psychologically, you'll click into gear and survive the, the experience. Uh, Victor Frankel says the same thing in his book. You know, the, the ones that sat around saying, why me? Why me? This, this can't be me. I'm a banker. I'm a rich person. I'm a this, I'm a that. They're the ones that just kind of curled up in the fetal position in the um, German prison camps and just die. Just let themselves die.
1: So kind of working then with with organizations and with business management, how can you sort of, how are you able to start, start kind of shifting? Is it a matter of sort of shifting people's mindset or what, what's, what, what needs to happen? I guess when you kind of start going into organizations and, and see, you know, this sort of uh, maladaptive behavior going on.
0: Sure. Well, it is maladaptive compared to this elite little, you know, special special case where you know American taxpayers have paid for this elite team, this elite rock band kind of a thing. Um, I think it's 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 you know the old measure twice, cut once. When you look at your talent inflow and how you define talent at the very point of hiring, that's the first place I try to influence my management team and anybody else that asks me my opinion. Because you can create a culture that lines up with whatever it is that your organization is trying to accomplish. So if you're a nonprofit, you need a culture that has a certain mindset that maybe is not just giving, but feels that the mission and the sacrifice and working weekends and nights is worth the outcome of helping people in need. If you bring in somebody who's just a business person looking for a better paycheck, you're misaligned, right? So if you bring in a salesperson that just wants to get by, and you need a salesperson to open up new territories and be hungry and expand, and you're, you're, there's misalignment there too. So the job description's got to be correct. You've got to think about not just the the aptitude component of the job description. Are they capable technically, education, you know, technical experience, but what's their their aptitude? And the aptitude to me, because that's kind of how I look at everybody. It's aptitude and attitude if they have a great attitude, they're open to learning, they're open to working with other people, they're, working, they're open to being the leader of a project and also the follower of a project. Being a good follower and being a good leader are, are both very, very important, especially in team-oriented atmospheres. So if we hire people that are technically great and they stink at this, this other kind of adaptive assimilation of, of being a part of a whole and caring about the bigger picture, then we've checked the box on the resume on all the technical aspects of it. And we brought in somebody that's gonna be completely at odds with the culture and the mission and the the end state. So you have to bring them in from the beginning. And as you're evaluating employees and managers over time, you have to make a decision what kind of culture you want, what that alignment looks like. And do you have people currently that are just not stepping up to that particular, you know, line that you've you've drawn you do all the normal HR stuff. You try to explain to it. You try to, but it's hard to adapt somebody that say it's only focused on a better paycheck and convert them into somebody who cares about, you know, feeding kids. I mean, that's a, that's a pretty big psychological leap. So aligning alignment upfront before you hire somebody is important. But before that, the job design and, and making sure that you have this behavioral kind of aptitude um, component to the job design and to the interview process. Otherwise, I see it happening. People revert all the time. HR people, managers, they want to hire somebody. There's a gap. They need somebody in there fast. They expedite. Technically, good enough. Nobody's going to fire me because I hired this guy who's really great technically or this one really great technically. And then six months later, I'm being briefed about this problem we have. (laughs) And it turns out, pull up the resume, technically squared away. Turns out they don't like working with other people. You know they only want to work on linear projects in their cubicle. They don't want to be part of you know uh, multi-dimensional projects. They don't want to work for five different bosses and on and on and on. It won't work weekends. So that that's that's the the core thing I tell people. I think if you do that right, you're probably seventy five percent down the path of getting a kind of collective mindset in, in line with with whatever your organization's doing. And every organization is going to have a slightly different you know angle attack on where they want to go.
1: And how about specifically the like you work also kind of with like leaders like the CEOs of companies, correct? Yes. Is it, so tell me about kind of what what you coach them or train them to do and and what kind of, you know, you talked about kind of being able to to lead and and follow. I think we kind of touched more so on on following or or what to look for at least in the followers in, in terms of the company, but what can you tell me about, you know, the, the skills needed for, for a leader to really handle a a business? Well,
0: that's a good question. And that's, that's the question I tried to, um, address in, in my, my first book, be nimble. I almost called it be humble because it starts with humility. And if you have leaders that can clear their mind of, of their, um, I guess their, their, their accolades you know, the previous professional accolades and also clear their mind of, of their failures. Uh, I see that as baggage. I see that as irrelevant. A lot of people talk about experience kind of being a determining factor on people's ability to do things, to lead. There's a certain judgment component to experience, but if you start out with with a problem set in front of you as a leader, And the first thing you do is you try to apply what you know and what you think, you know, and let's say you failed three times. So now you're, you're, you're looking at it and you're, you've got a high risk problem because you've been failing at every challenge you've been looking at. So you got a whole different mindset or the reverse of that is, you know, you got a huge bonus you're, you're, you're doing real well. So now you got a little bit of arrogance. You're not really opening your mind. You're not looking at, at oblique sources of data. You're not listening to people that are kind of over on the, the fringe of the conversation or or the people that are arguing against uh, the grain, because you, you feel pretty good about yourself. And so you're going to go forward anyway. So you have to basically sit down, you know, every day when you come in into the office or wherever you do in the morning and clear your mind and say, whatever happens today, I've got to face it with a clean blank slate and open my eyes and open my ears and listen and collect before I think of it. And before I make a judgment, before I decide to do anything, now, I think it works. I think when people that I've talked to, worked with, and my own leaders, when they apply this, uh, it, they have an open mind. They, they listen. I'll say things like, don't make any decisions. Don't say anything verbally. It sounds like a decision you know, for a day. Think through and, and maybe look for more information separately. Go to open sources and pull more things in. Think through that all through before you make a decision on something that hits you that's, that's new. Don't just do a rote memorization, oh, that's play number 46 and just spit out the answer. Because the world changes every day and the targets change, your competition changes, the capabilities of of your competition change and whatever you're doing, whether it's a service or or a a product becomes either less or more uh, relevant. And if you're not paying attention to all that other information, if you're kind of just listening to your own, you know, your own, uh, it's kind of like sitting there watching your, your, if you played football, watching yourself on your senior year varsity, you know, running that big touchdown over and over every day in your mind, you know, it's, it's crazy, right? Another thing that I will tell people, and I think I mentioned this in the book. Can you imagine if, and say I walked up and you're, and you're the boss or so you're a follower. And you ask me a question, and I gave you an answer from the 1975 uh, Encyclopedia Britannica, which at the time in 1975 had all the information that was accurately collected about the whole world and everything in the world. The next day it was wrong. <laughs> Somewhere in the, in the whole set of encyclopedias, some fact was now overturned. Every single year it became less and less correct and to the point where it's not correct at all. So think of that as your college education. Think of that as the job you had 10 years ago the job you had three years ago. A lot of that is irrelevant. And and using that and applying that as a leader in the moment is kind of a definition of insanity, as far as I'm concerned. So experience is great when it comes to handling stress and handling, you know, and handling judgments related to stress, but it's pretty bad on making, making decisions that have, uh, you know, consequences and, and especially decisions that have anything to do with something new challenging. You got to clear your mind. You got to become humble before you can learn. And then you got to learn before you, you make a
1: call. So kind of having that adaptability to be able to sort of change what, what works today might not work tomorrow and being able to be conscious enough to, to recognize that and alter your sort of, uh, leadership, uh, I guess, mindset or, or just the way you're, you're leading kind of based on what's changing in an organization or the world at large.
0: Exactly. Um, that, I mean, I call it be nimble. I mean, agile management's kind of another term that's thrown out there because that's, that's kind of what you do after you've been humble. The humility allows you, sets you up, you know, for success in in absorbing new information. And then you, then you become, then you have to be nimble. You have to, you have to apply it. Um, an example, if you're scaling a company, you're going from small to medium to large, you're going to have to reorganize, you should have to reorganize and reconform and, re, and maybe you're going to you know, outsource and then you're going to offshore and then you're going to take it all back in again when you're really big because the economies and the scales and everything are completely different at different sizes as you're growing, right? Well, if you're not changing and adapting and doing all those things and your competition is, you end up stalling the growth. You end up spending way too much money doing it the old way. You have way too many people or not enough people. You have a system that's overwhelmed, you know, because you're growing and nobody anticipated you might grow. So you didn't go out and look for another platform to to assist with the next level of growth. There is a, there are so many things happening. So many things changing, especially in American business. A lot of it's technology driven, but you know, a lot of it's the way labor is, is conceived these days. Right. I mean, 15 years ago, people sitting at home working on computers and not coming into work would have been fired. No questions asked. That, that was the standard. And anybody that's a leader, if I'd walked into my boss and said, hey, I'm going to have half my people sit home because <laughs> we've got the Internet now, they would probably fired me or ordered me to get them all in. That, that sounds idiotic right now, but that was a transition. There was a time and it's still going on with the COVID thing. You know, do we force everybody back into the box? Does everybody got to come back into the building? Do we have to get a head count? It's kind of a control thing, right? Is it based on a reality of it's better to have everybody in the box? I don't know. I don't think anybody's even thinking it through. I think they're just trying to revert back to what they know. They're comfortable going around counting heads. And, you know, I think collaboration, it's difficult sometimes to do a whiteboard analysis and a collaboration and. And in a room, people can see, feel the energy and you start firing back and forth and everything. You you read body language, that dynamic, I don't see coming across in, you know, in the, the tele, you know, televideo type medium, but with, with the cloud in place and, and this kind of communications capability, my companies haven't had any trouble.
1: Marty, what can you, uh, I want to shift gears a little bit. Tell me, uh your new book, you're coming out with a book called be visionary strategic leadership in the age of optimization. Tell me about what inspired you to write that book and what, what the focus of the book is.
0: Sure. So be nimble is coming out January 1st in the United States. And I think December 10th in the United kingdom, it focused on all the things we've just been talking about. And it's a lot more about, um, self inventory and getting to this point where you're you're you understand that being humble is as is a positive and then what do you do with it and then you know kind of attacking the the areas of business management leadership that I seem to run across over and over and over again talent acquisition talent management you know training scaling um, so that's what be nimble does but as I was going through be nimble uh, before before the uh, the beginning of covid i realized that I was running into, in my research, I was running into this other kind of fight that was going on. The fight was between technology and what it can do to optimize whatever process you wanna think about, right? Supply chain management, anything, production, manufacturing. And it can minutely measure incremental changes and report those things out and dashboards and everybody gets you know KPIs and all that. That's great. So everybody starts managing. It's like managing a trip on the Siberian railroad, a 700 mile trip by sticking your head out of the window and and looking at every rock going by. (laughs) It's, it, you don't even know where you're going. You don't know if you're going off a cliff. You don't know anything about what's out in front of you. You're not enjoying the ride, but by God, you know how many rocks went by, you know, you've got a good count of that. And so I saw this, this separation from Technology-driven optimization and visionary strategic thinking, how to pivot, how to look at the edge of the you know horizon for threats and opportunities. And they were swapping places. As a matter of fact, it, it was optimization was now the new objective. Short, you know, short duration gratification. Eventually, the bigger the company, it's it's financial short-term gratification. And when you do that, the justification for investment in people. In your own people and more people in systems that whole justification starts to just kind of fall apart so you start seeing a shrinkage in invest investment and there's there's obviously companies and organizations there that, that are more enlightened and they they don't think that way but it seems like coming out of the colleges and coming out of the business schools and everything it's about optimize optimize what are your kpis you know um so if you interview somebody a senior person and, and we were doing that if i asked them what you know, what do they thought were key, you know, key performance indicators in our industry? Man, they rattle them off. They rattled them off like that. And I'd say, What do you see on the horizon for the industry? I get a blank stare. They weren't teaching that in college. They weren't teaching that in any companies these people used to work for. Nobody asked their opinion about what's going to happen tomorrow. So I decided to write Be Visionary. And Be Visionary basically, Starts off with what you have to have as a, a leader kind of in your in your uh, repertoire of skills, capabilities, how you kind of have to cleanse yourself of, of biases and things like that. And also prepares you for what you're going to get into, which is a struggle with, with the organization. You're going to get in a struggle with any organization you're in because most of them are focusing on this optimization. They're focusing on short-term, the weekly reports, right? the monthly reports, the daily performance. And you're going to look a little bit like an idiot crazy person when you walk in and say has anybody thought about xyz company i read an article and they're getting ready to do this are we thinking about what's going to happen out there are we going to do that and they stare at you forget about xyz company where's that report and they go back and what happens is if they stay in that mindset or that company with that mindset for very long all that 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 thought that creative kind of curiosity gets squashed it's compressed so i talked to that too realize it's already happened to you if you if you don't know it you have to release that curiosity you have to release that creativity and then you have to apply it and then i go into the process how do you do that how do you make a pitch it's like a vc pitch it's like a venture uh venture capital pitch there is a an art to it how do you put it together how do you make it palatable as a business um concept because whoever you're pitching it to is probably not going to be a guru or a yogi (laughs) you're going to have to come up with some kind of business aspects to it and then how to bring in a team to help you with that so that you have all those, those, those questions nailed down. And then how to kind of craft the challenge. If, if I told, and I use an examples in there, if I told somebody, Hey, I just looked at the news, there's a hurricane. It's going to hit in 20 minutes. And then I showed them the picture. Everybody would react because there's a real hurricane. But if I tell them there's going to hurricane, it's going to hit in 12 years. It's going to wipe this entire city out. Even if I'm right and I know it for some, for some reason, they're gonna ignore me. So you have to make it a real threat or a real opportunity. And there's a way to do that. So I go through that and, uh, and then I, I spend a little bit of time on going through the entire proposal process and then the implementation of your vision. So the plan has been approved, you pitched it, you got the approval, you know how to deal with the people resourcing the plan. They're gonna, you know, are we there yet? There's a lot of little things. Project management is very engineering-driven. It makes sense to be. But sometimes you need to pivot and change in midstream. That takes creativity, courage, and the ability to repitch sometimes. And depending on how long your, your, your visionary project is, if it's turning an entire company around or you know, like turning a ship, turning a battleship in a bathtub kind of a thing, if, if 24 months goes by, some of your initial assumptions that you pitched and, and built your vision on may have changed. And so you, you have to re- kind of restart the engine. A little bit about how to treat the team that you're using to, to, to build the vision, how to motivate them. And, uh, and in the last chapter, I talk a little bit about all the disruptive, I go through about four or five different markets, industries, and what disruption is doing to them now and how they are opening all kinds of opportunities for creative leaders and thinkers to kind of seize the moment, seize the day. And, um, and that's, that, that's be visionary. And that, that'll come out at the end of next summer uh, I finished it. It's actually in editing right now, but it won't come out until the end of next summer.
1: Got it. So if people, Marty, if people want to uh, find out or, or get uh, Be Nimble or uh, the book that is uh, the uh, uh, Be a Visionary that's coming out, um, where would you direct them to? Or just if they want to find out more about your work altogether.
0: Sure. So there's two ways. One is to go to amazon.com and just put in Marty Strong, M-A-R-T-Y Strong, and that'll take you right to uh, Be Nimble. Uh, you can also go to my author website, which is Nimble.com. And there's excerpts in there. I've got articles that I've written. Um, there's uh, a couple of um, a couple of other books that I've done that are in the, in the fiction side, if, if people get interested in that. But um, Be Nimble was my ninth book. It was my first business book. I have, I have eight novels. And the uh, Be Vision will be my 10th book. So. I, uh, I like to write.
1: Awesome. Well, uh, yeah, I highly recommend you guys go check that out. And Marty, uh, thank you so much for coming on the show today and sharing all of your, your insights and knowledge and expertise.
0: Thanks for having me, Toby. <laughs>
1: you just can't help yourself, can you?